and about taming the tongue. And I immediately you know, thought of the, the, the little um, thing that kids always say or used to say when I was a kid. Um, you know, the old sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, huh? Yeah, yeah. And then I, you know, realizing, of course, that that is patently untrue. Um, names and words do actually hurt sometimes. They have tremendous power. And I, th- I think that actually we're, we're only starting to realize that words can build people up. There are some, some things that I remember that people have said to me or words they have conveyed to me in writing that I still remember years later because of their power to build up. And I also remember things that people have said to me that were pr- profoundly damaging. And of course, the, the lesson, of course, is that it doesn't take a lot to do a lot. A, a, a little goes a long way. So be careful what you do with your tongue. Be careful what you say. But then as I, as I looked more into James 3 here, I realized that James is actually talking about something far, far deeper than that. James isn't just saying, you know, put a lid on your words. James isn't saying, you know, if you haven't got something good to say, don't say anything at all, although I'm sure that he wouldn't disagree with that. He's actually talking about a far, far deeper issue that I, that I think is, is a powerful one as we think about what, what influence our words have to say on those people around us. I, I, we live in a culture where people routinely, just about every day, are encouraged to follow their passions, follow their heart. I mean, how many times this week have you come across an ad or heard a person say, or or, or on TV, heard somebody convey a message that said basically, in effect, follow your passions. In advertising, we get told that we should live the way we want to live, dress the way you want to dress, do what, what makes you feel good, what you feel passionate about, speak what's on your heart, get it off your chest. That, that kind of message to, to be yourself, to, to find your own path is, is out there. And, and I'm not saying that it's uniformly bad either. I'm not trying to say that what, you, what, you, what we read and hear is, is an evil that we need to avoid. But it's an unnuanced message that can have, has a hard edge to it. And in Christian circles, we, we've in some ways, bought into the spirit of the culture. We, I recognize that each person here, am I allowed to walk around like this? I don't know if there are any rules about this. I'm a wanderer. I was a bad seminary student. I could never sit still in class, and the desks were always so small. Um, so I, if I can wander, if you'll indulge me, I'll do that. In our, in our Christian talk, we have, we have imbibed, we have, we've caught on to the spirit of the times, and everybody is, is different, and everybody is unique, and, and we, we glory in that, the way that God has gifted different people with different abilities, different personalities, different style, and in, in, in all kinds of ways, and that's an amazing thing, because God does an amazing variety of things for the, through the amazing variety of, of, of people in God's body, in the, in, the, in the body of Christ, but we've also sort of taken it at times a little farther than I think the biblical writers intended, maybe farther than Jesus 
intended. I don't know if you heard recently there was a, a kerfuffle online, I think on the Huffington Post among other places, about a sermon from Victoria Osteen from Lakewood Church in Houston. Uh, Joel and Victoria Osteen are very are popular pastoral couple whose message is really one of, of empowerment, so much so that they make their message about what God can do for you and what... Um, Victoria Osteen said, and I'll quote her here because I don't want to do, uh, ju- do an injustice, is, is this. She said, when we obey God, we're not doing it for God, we're doing it for ourselves, Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. Do, go- do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself. Because that's what makes God happy. Hmm, really? Now, when you hear a, a, a quote like that out of context, it's, it could be kind of glaring and, and jarring. And it's not to say, of course, that we don't derive a benefit from worshiping God, from serving God, from gathering in community. If we don't derive a benefit from it, then there's something really wrong here. But, if we, but when it becomes all about us and what we want, when God becomes a servant of our passions, then I think we've actually mistaken what this is all about here. And I think what we see in this is kind of the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we can sometimes fall prey to, the, 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 the trap of individualism, about making God about what I want. Now, the Bible does make some real statements about the abundant life, about the good life that is defined by and found in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that Jesus' purpose is to give us what we want. And even more, the freedom that we enjoy in Christ is not a license to indulge our passions. I gotta be me is a popular catchphrase but it's kind of a a distortion of what the Bible says about what godly Christian discipleship is. Coming back to the book of James, James is a book that I think is intended to shed light on what Christian character is by giving you little vignettes, little windows on godly Christian discipleship. The, the famous 20th century philosopher, uh, Forrest Gump, said, stupid is as stupid does. Well, Christian is as Christian does. And that's why the book of James is laid out the way it is, because James, I think, is trying to convey the message to his readers, the vitality and the reality and the substance of your Christian faith is going to be seen in the things that you do. It's got to come out somewhere. It doesn't just stay locked up inside. So he talks about practical things, caring for others in chapter 1, mercy without favoritism in chapter 2, faith revealed in action also in chapter 2, as this is what... It looks like when the faith that is inside of you is real, when the Holy Spirit is working. He doesn't talk about it in those terms, but I'm convinced that that's what he's getting at. And in chapter 3, he changes to talking about our speech. What does 
godly Christian speech look like and not look like? And so we come to the text. He he starts off, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And he says, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Now, this, I don't know what this does for you. I think the scripture brings images in your mind. The the image that immediately came to mind is I, I, I... just remember this as vividly as if it were yesterday. Getting into our family car for the very first time when I was 16 years old and my dad was going to teach me how to drive. And I remember the words of wisdom that he gave to me to set me off on the path towards safety and, and, and security. He said, son, when I'm teaching you how to drive, do as I say, not as I do. And, you know, how many, people, how, how many people remember that kind of conversation with a parent that taught you how to drive? Just put your hand up. I'm not going to, you don't have to walk, so it's not an altar call. Okay. It, it, is, it is profound. I shudder to think of the first time I'm riding with one of my children when they're learning how to drive. I, I'm suddenly going to have a bright light shone on me, reminding me of everything that I do wrong as a driver. Suddenly being a teacher of someone who is learning how to drive makes me realize how far short I actually fall. A similar experience when I, the first time I taught a seminary class. I had this profound feeling of being an imposter I realized that there were things that I was going to say and teach in that class that I probably learned yesterday, but I'm going to talk about them as though they're things that I've known for years. Now, it it probably doesn't matter when I learned, so long as I'm teaching out of the depth of what I have actually prepared to teach, but when you know that it's the nature of of what it is and, and when, you feel, oh, I am not nearly as together as I hope I come across in the class. If people really knew what I knew about me, would they actually even listen to me? And how long is it going to be before I say something that blows my cover? These are the, thing, the thoughts that we have. Anyone of us who has been in a teaching role probably has thought thoughts something like this. Being a teacher is not something we, we gravitate toward. But maybe you're not a teacher. Maybe you're not. So let's bring it to another level. And I think this is maybe a, 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 something that some others can, re- can resonate with. Parents are in this position. When you're talking to your kids and you're trying to be stern because they've done something severely wrong, which is also so funny enough that you're tr- struggling not to laugh, that is very difficult. Or when you're when you uh, get your kids packed off to bed and you tell them, no, it is not time to have more chocolate before bed because that is bad for you. You get them packed off to bed, and the first thing you think is, well, you know, some chocolate would be really good right now. (laughs) And of course, it's at that moment when you're having that that forbidden piece of chocolate, your kid kind of gets up and says, I have to go to the bathroom, and comes out, or I need a drink of water, and they catch you red-handed. Ooh. 
Not many of you, us should become teachers are the words that, that James uses, not just to indicate people who are in a formal teaching role, although that's obviously an end in, in view here, but I think he's talking to people who realize that they have influence. Everybody here has a circle of influence. Everybody here, whether formally or informally, has a teaching role to play at some point. I say that very specifically and directly in order to ward off people who might think, well, gee, I'm not a teacher. I guess I'm going to opt out. I'm going to snooze here and maybe sip on my coffee and I'll tune back in in about 10 minutes when he gets on to the next point. No, no, nobody ever gets a chance to opt out of being a teacher. Everybody should be aware of this reality. There is always the reality that Somebody is watching and learning from you, whether you are 82, 22, or 12, or even 11. My son is 11. And there are the responsibility that that brings sort of suggests to me two things, and I think this gets to the heart of what James is actually driving home in this chapter. One is the need for integrity, soundness, consistency. What we say should reflect what we actually do. The goal of this is not to tame the tongue in order to preserve the facade that we have something reasonably together despite what's going on behind it. No, what we say should reflect what is actually going on. We're, we're, we're the same on the inside as we are on the outside. On the flip side, though, reflecting what James says in verse 2, is the reality that we need to be aware and, and humble enough to acknowledge that we do fall short every day. James says we all stumble in many ways. I mean, there are, there are two, people, two kinds of people, the people who, who fall short and admit it, and the people who fall short and don't. I don't know which one you are, that's not up to me to talk about, but we all do fall short. So does this stand, apparently. That's okay. I'll work with it. Everybody, whether you're a CEO or a fourth grader, this is a reminder for Christians that one of the essential uh, fruits of the Spirit is self-control. You know, it's funny, we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, and we all talk about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know, and we, we talk about all those things. All those things are positive things. You know when somebody is being loving. You know when somebody is, is being kind. There are, there, there are obvious things that we do. Self-control isn't one of those things. It's Self-control is actually, you know, self-control. Is he sleeping? No, I think that's actually self-control. If... It's something that's not as obvious until we do, actually self-control really becomes really obvious when it's missing. When self-control is missing, then we have a real problem here. James is hinting at, the, at, at some of the situations here where self-control is, is missing in, in speech and then all kinds of things, crazy things happen. <laughs> Truth is, Oh, these are reading glasses, and I can probably see my text more clearly at that distance than if it were up close. I can, 
I'm all, I'm all right with it. Um, but anyway, let's, let's move on. This is the tongue. The tongue is, is, is what, what uh, James talks about to refer to our speech, our words, our, our, our conduct, but it's not all, he's not talking just about the tongue. But I think the tongue, he uses the tongue as a metaphor because the tongue is a, is a good analogy. The tongue is a small part. I, I think if I remember from, from junior high school science class that pound for pound, the tongue is the strongest muscle in your body, um, which is, I think, a, a very interesting thing. Because we live in a culture where, you know, where size matters. The, the bigger, the better. I, I was... Um, surfing eBay for fun. I like to look at fun cars and trucks on eBay, and I was, my son and I were looking at this SUV. It was completely over the top. It was like a monster truck SUV. Big, huge tires, and I saw my son's eyes widen because it's just out there and over the top. We've, be- we've become um, oriented to the, to the reality that it's got to be bigger and outlandish before it really gets any attention, and, and small and and concentrated doesn't really actually get, our, get us, it doesn't uh, grab us anymore. I, I was a car guy growing up. My dad was a, a, a car person. He loved cars. I, so I grew up in cars, under cars, um, working on cars with my dad. It's amazing I'm still alive today. And I remember in car culture, you know, the, 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 the old dictum is there's no substitute for hu- cubic inches, you know, cubic inches. There's no substitute for cubic inches. It's that Tim Taylor, you know, oh, 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 kind of mentality. The bigger, the better, the badder. That, that's what it is. But when it comes to the tongue, actually, size doesn't matter. Uh, the, the small, that small part of your body has incredible, incredible power. And James reminds us of that in the analogies that he uses, the, the examples that he uses in James 3 here about, about small things that do big. The bit in the mouth of a horse can turn the whole animal. A horse is an amazingly powerful animal, even though a horse has only one horsepower. It's amazingly powerful. It can do an amazing thing. And put up against any of us, it's, it's no match. But you put that bit in the horse's mouth especially when the horse has been trained, of course, and it, can, it, it exercises an amazing amount of control, or proportionately the size of a ship compared to the, to the rudder, of course, it's huge. It, it, it moves that whole ship, and if, I think the analogy is even more apt now. If you go down to Vancouver in English Bay and see the big uh, the, the ocean-going freighters at anchor in the harbor, you think about the size of the rudder that turns that huge ship, and it's powerful. It's a powerful metaphor. It's a powerful reminder. I think if James were going to use an analogy today, he might use the analogy of the first atomic bomb. Um, It's probably a a scary analogy, but I think it actually is in keeping with what he actually says about the tongue. The first atomic bomb was dropped about almost 70 years ago on Hiroshima, and it, it exploded with an energy equivalent to 16,000 tons of TNT, an astounding amount. It, it obliterated an entire city. People, I don't know if you realize this, underneath, directly in an area directly below where the, the bomb exploded, because it exploded above ground for maximum damage, um, were literally vaporized. People and buildings vaporized. There were shadows on the pavement where they had been standing or sitting. The the incredible energy 
of the destructive power of this bomb is, is absolutely mind-boggling. 16,000 tons was the equivalent blast. The, the, the piece of uranium was actually 64 kilograms, um, less than, than many people here in this room in weight. But because it was the f one of the first ones and because it was such a primitive bomb, actually the, when, when um, scientists calculated the, the amount of actual uranium metal that was converted to energy, they, they figured that it was probably between 600 and 800 milligrams. I got some, some pills. These are, this is a acetaminophen pill, it's 200 milligrams. So the amount of energy that, that destroyed an entire city and killed tens of thousands of people is about this much, I can hold it in my hand. That's how much power came out of that, that bomb. A little did an amazing amount. That, I think, is an uh, apt metaphor for the power of the tongue. The things that we say have an immediate effect and they have a far-reaching effect, probably far beyond our ability to understand. It's a sobering thought. The tongue is not only powerful, but what James goes on to say is it, and it's kind of ironic because he turns his, his analogies on their heads. He talks about the bit controlling the horse, but then he goes on to say in verse 7, if we, if we didn't feel wary enough about what we said, he starts to go on to say, all kinds of animals, birds and reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Not only is the tongue powerful, but it's unpredictable. Do you ever have... One of those moments, usually the moments that we have when we're most aware of the impact of what we say is just after we said, say something that we wish we hadn't said. Unfortunately, that's often the way, that's the way human nature usually works. No matter how hard we try to curb our inclination to say things which are damaging, in, it's inevitable that every single one of us is going to fall into that trap. That's, I think, why this is not simply a, a message, a passage about curbing what you say. There is there's something far more in this. James is not simply trying to tell us that we should be careful about our tongue, about the fact that our tongue is evil. That's, I remember, I remember the first time I heard that verse, uh, James 3, verse 8. No, one, no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. I remember hearing that and I'm thinking, if somebody licks me, I could die. <laughs> I, was, I was terrified. I didn't realize what, it's actually not, a, not literally full of poison. The, the idea is not to curb our, our speech and say nothing so that we don't hurt anybody. I think the point that James is trying to make here is that our natural selves, our human nature is self-oriented. I, I want to do what I want. And I, I'm selfish and I'm sinful. 
And so my tongue reflects that. My, thing, my tongue says things that I want to say, and my inclination is not to worry about what Brad's feelings are. So I'm going to say things that, are, that hurt Brad. It's only a matter of time before I wound my brother. And there's nothing that I can do about it. By the way, that's a statement about me, not a statement about Brad. Okay, I'm just going to make that clear. But it's true of every single person here. It's only a matter of time before your tongue harms because we are all sinful people and we cannot control our sinful nature on our own. In uh, Romans chapter 5, Paul talks along similar lines when he reminds us in Romans 5 verse 6, at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That is actually the point that I think is underneath all of what James is saying. We are powerless. Our tongue is, is like a ticking time bomb, like a, like a, a vial of poison which is inevitably going to go off or spill or cause harm because we are powerless and it is only the power of Christ in us that enables us to overcome this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. The tongue is a metaphor for our sinful, wayward, selfish natures that, that do things that hurt others, sometimes intentionally, or sometimes unintentionally, but often intentionally. And they reflect what is really in us as natural people. The things that we say don't reflect who we want to be, but they do reflect who we are in our natural people. But fortunately, fortunately, there is more to it. We're not powerless and left powerless to, to change our lot. God gives us the strength and the ability, the transformation through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us to change what is going on inside so that it changes what comes out. James, though, is reminding us of the need to make sure that the things that have happened inside are reflected in the things that come out of our mouths. We always struggle with this. It doesn't go away when we become Christians. We don't stop sinning, stop wanting to sin, stop wanting to do our own things, stop wanting to hurt other people at certain times. They, they stick with us. But as we crucify the old self, that selfish, poisonous, evil inclination that we see coming out through our tongues, we see God's constructive work happening on a day-to-day basis. Romans 6.6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 
people who hurt one another with our tongues. Galatians 5.24, the verse after Paul's list of the fruits of the Spirit, says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the self with its passions and desires. The thing about the tongue is that it's, we need to crucify the tongue daily, crucify the sinfulness in us daily. Now, you may be thinking, well, if my sinful nature is, is dead because I'm alive in Christ, what's the big deal? The, the fact of the matter is even the part of us that is dead spiritually has, has danger in it. Uh, uh, there's a farmer in central Washington named Danny Anderson learned, who learned a lesson about how even dead things can be dangerous. Uh, a five-foot rattlesnake made its way onto his, his farm in central Washington. So Anderson and his 27-year-old son, Benjamin, pinned the snake to the ground with an irrigation pipe and cut off its head with a shovel. They killed it. A few more strikes to the head left it sitting under a pickup truck. Anderson relates this, when I went down, reached down to pick up the head, it raised around, did kind of almost a backflip, and bit my finger. I had to shake my hand real hard to get it loose. His wife insisted that they go to the hospital, and when they arrived 10 minutes later, Anderson's tongue was swollen and the venom was spreading. He then was taken by ambulance 30 miles to Richland, Washington, to a hospital to get the full series of six shots that he needed. That head was dead, but it, it still had the power to do harm. That's the power of the tongue. That which is dead still has the power to kill. And so, implicitly, I think James is calling us to live us, uh, by the power of the Spirit and continue to crucify that which is dead and deadly in us. Now, some of you may be saying, man, this, this sounds way too much like work. This is way too hard. I mean, I, I, I do a pretty good job. Most of the time, I'm, I'm, I'm great. Most of the time, I'm, I'm positive, and I'm upbeat, and I'm loving. Yeah, I have my moments. But come on, get off my back. Well, my, my response to that is, Something that works some of the time or most of the time isn't all that much better than something that doesn't work at all. If you, you are like me, when you were younger, you had a car. My first car was a 1963 Plymouth Belvedere. It was a great car. I went on a weekend youth trip and carried all the food we needed for the whole weekend in the trunk of my car. It was huge. Uh, you could probably put a double bed in there. It was a great car, and it started most of the time. <laughs> now, the funny thing about when you're in your 20s, most of the time is good enough, because really, that's, you know that's all you can afford. But when you get into your 30s or into your 40s, when you've got a, a job that carries more responsibility, you start to realize 
most of the time isn't cutting it anymore. I want a car that's going to start all of the time. And specifically, if there is going to be an issue about it not starting, I want to know in advance because I don't want to be caught short. I want it to be predictable. Similarly, if you have a watch, I, I, I am a kind of a watch guy. I have some old pocket watches at home, mechanical ones. Um, they're, they're quite old. With, with watches in the olden days, they, of course, they wanted to make sure that the, that the watch kept regular time. It was okay if a watch was always slow, because you can adjust for that. You know what to expect. Or if it was always fast, then you, could, then you know what to expect. But if your watch is fast and then slow, or some days it stops and then starts, we have a word for that. It's called a paperweight. It's useless because you don't know what to expect from this watch. James here goes on to talk about the way in which we use our tongues as needing to be not only godly most of the time, but actually predictably godly. What does James say in verse 9 here? He says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. The thing about the Christian life is that unpredictable people who call themselves Christians are a disaster waiting to happen. The thing about the Christian life is that it's supposed to reflect a consistent, positive change in our lives, in our speech. We should be, be able to identify godly Christians, mature Christians, as people who consistently are constructive, consistently build other people up, consistently are pointing towards maturity and godliness. And people who don't have the ability to do that, lack maturity, lack the evidence of spiritual vitality. There is no, there's no two ways about it. God doesn't play percentages. In Major League Baseball, if you're batting 350, you're doing great. In the church, if you're speaking 350, you really suck. And James doesn't really mince words about this. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. This doesn't follow. It doesn't work. The very nature of what God is doing in the life of Christians means that you can't have that. You can't get there from here. Now, I realize what he has said in verse 2, saying we all stumble in many ways, and we do. But if the stumbling comes to define the, the contours of our Christian discipleship, then, then we have an issue. We have a, a, a profound issue. And, and the point of all of this in, in James chapter 3 is not to say, you guys all are terrible. You need to work harder and sweat and, and live up to this high standard. This isn't, this, this isn't contrary to what we may think sometimes about the book of James, some moralistic message that says you're never good enough, you always need to do more. The message of James is, if God is really at work within you, this is what it needs to look like, brothers and sisters, otherwise we don't do justice to our calling. And 
At the same time, as we hear this message from James, we need to know that underneath it is always a reassurance that greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. An apple tree that produces bananas, an orange tree that produces figs, doesn't make sense. A spring that on one day produces fresh water and another day produces salt water is a spring that nobody is going to go to anymore. That's the, the reality. Changeability, instability is absolutely incompatible with the Christian life. We all have our foibles. We all know that we've done this. And that's actually one of the, the, the joys of being in community. We have the opportunity to help one another. Sometimes it means we're going to offer a word of encouragement. Sometimes it's going to be an arm around the shoulder. My brother, my sister, I have an issue. I have a problem because what, something you said. I have an issue about what happened last Thursday, and it's, and it's bothering me enough that I need to come and talk to you and, and work this through with you. We've all been there on one side of it or not, or the other. In the, coming to the end of this, I want us to, to think about the power of the words that come out of our mouths. And I encourage you, tame your tongue, watch your words, not because you want to make sure that you keep up the right appearance, but because you know that what comes out of your mouth reflects what is in your heart. People will learn who you are by, by listening to what you say. Are you bearing witness to the reality of the Holy Spirit changing you into the likeness of Jesus Christ in the words that you said this morning when you were getting ready for church to your spouse, to your children, to that guy who cut you off in traffic? If you are going to follow your passions, follow your heart. Is your passion surrendered to Jesus? If it is, follow it wherever it goes. If not, then maybe we have some work to do. And maybe it starts with thinking about, what does my mouth say about me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have, you have given us everything that we need to love you and serve you, to build one another up in the faith, to share a message of hope and transformation with people who need to have hope. Lord, motivate us through the ministry of your word to be people who reflect that transformation, to model it so that when we talk, people nod and say, yeah, I get it. Thank you that we can be part of your work, part of your mission, part of your body. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Brian, I want to uh, thank you for sharing that uh, with us. And uh, I want to uh, help us transition into 
uh, both a time of response. If you'd like to stay, Dan and the team will uh, lead us as is customary here in our time of prayer response. And so uh, Aaron Franson and Laura will be available over at one side for prayer, and I'll be available over at the other side here. And uh, we would welcome you to come, and we'd love to pray together with you. I think that the metaphor of our series is a mirror, and Brian and the book of James has held up a mirror to certainly my heart. And so if there's anything that you would like to just do business with in terms of God or with another person here in the life of Jericho, then as Dan and the team lead us in song, we'd encourage you to do that. So uh, for the rest, if you would like to transition into either picking up your children or whatever other plans you have for the afternoon, please feel free to do that. Be respectful of those who'd like to continue in a time of worship and response here as we uh, go our separate ways this morning.